We're going to, as we continue our study through the book of Romans, we are coming to Romans chapter 8 uh, this morning, and we'll be spending the next several weeks in this chapter. Uh, and this is one of those chapters that really stand out in Scripture. There are many pastors uh, throughout history and many theologians that have made claims about chapter 8 of Romans as being their, their most favorite chapter in all the Bible or the most important chapter in the Bible. And there's, there's many reasons for that. Um, it contains some wonderful and powerful truths that are meant to be a great encouragement to struggling sinners such as us. And so I hope this morning as we read this passage, we'll be working through verses 1 through 17, that you would be greatly encouraged. So I'd ask you now to stand in reverence to God's holy word. And as I read these verses, remember that this is God's inspired word, that this, these are the words of Jesus given to us. And I'll be reading chapter 8, verses 1 through 17. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Please pray with me. Lord, we do thank You for Your holy Word. We thank You for the truths that are contained within. Lord, we ask that You would give us the ability not simply to hear Your Word this morning, but to grasp it, to understand it, that it would be applied to our hearts and our minds, that we would be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We ask that as we study this passage together, that you would give us new insights and new wisdom, a greater understanding of the salvation and the redemption that we have through Christ Jesus and the hope that we have because of him. Most importantly, though, we ask that as we study these verses together, that we would see Jesus in a new and fresh way, and that he would be glorified, and we ask this in his name. Amen. Please be seated.
So last week we worked through the second half of chapter 7, and in that passage, Paul gave us a glimpse into his life, and more specifically, he provided us with a glimpse into his struggle with indwelling sin. And his point in that passage was simple, it's, it's that all Christians will struggle with sin. Yes, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you've been forgiven, you've been justified, you're being sanctified, you've been set free, but you will still wrestle with sin. Why is that? And if you remember, Paul pointed out it's because there are opposing forces still at work within us. There's the law of God versus the law of sin. There is the flesh versus the mind. And then there's the spirit versus our our sinful flesh. The spirit versus sin. Jesus has been victorious over all of these things. He has secured victory. But the problem is, is that we do not fully realize and experience that victory until we die. And until then, we live with these battles still raging within us. We still live in this tension. And that is why at the end of the chapter, Paul cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And that really should be the, heart of all, the, the cry of all Christian hearts. And his answer was, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is the one who has delivered us. He is the one who will continue to deliver us. And that is where we ended last week. Paul then goes in a very interesting direction from there as we uh, look at chapter 8. Because it is true, sin will continue. You will continue to struggle with sin. It will continue to dog you. Sin is not going away. But if you belong to Jesus, he has given you a great resource in this fight against sin. He's given you a resource that will equip you and encourage you and enable you to continue to fight that fight. And that resource is the Holy Spirit. Now, I know it's a little unusual for Presbyterians to be talking about the Holy Spirit, but that is what we're going to be talking about this morning. And I think the reason we find that is the Holy Spirit's main purpose, what he does primarily is he exalts Jesus. He points us to Jesus. So the focus is never upon himself. It's always upon Christ. And we are going to see that here this morning as well. Because we've been given the Spirit, because Christ has sent his Spirit to us, we can have assurance We can have confidence, and we can have hope as we continue to seek to walk with the Lord, as we continue to fight the fight against sin. So so how does the Holy Spirit do that? Well, that is what I'm hoping to answer as we work through these verses together. So first, let's begin in in verse 1. The Holy Spirit reminds us of the freedom that we have in Christ. We see this right off the bat. It says, therefore, or there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now this is one of those verses that if you've not already done so, I'd encourage you to, to highlight it in your Bibles or to underline it. If you haven't memorized it, this is one of those verses that it would do you well to memorize. It is a powerful, it's a powerful verse. It's small, it's short, it's easy to memorize, but it packs a very powerful punch. As a matter of fact, this one verse in many ways summarizes everything that Paul has written in chapters 1 through 5. And not only that, but it is a great application for what we studied last week in chapter 7. Because if you remember from chapter 7, yes, those who are in Christ Jesus will struggle with sin, but even though you're struggling with sin, there is now no condemnation for you. So what does that mean? What does it mean that there is no condemnation? Well, it means that there is nothing that can be held or used against you. 
There's absolutely nothing that can condemn you. And more specifically, it means that God no longer has anything to condemn you with. He no longer has anything against you. He finds no fault in you. We are free from all of our, 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 the debt of sin. We are free from the, the punishment and the penalty of sin. And we've been released from the guilt of sin. All of your sins have been paid for. They are all covered. All of your past sins, all of your current sins, all of your future sins have been washed away. They've been removed as far as the east is from the west. And this includes even those dark and ugly sins. Those sins that we all have done. Those sins that we all have that we hope no one will ever find about, find out about. Even those sins, they have been washed away. Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 tells us something about God. It tells us that Basically, that he knows everything, that there is nothing that is hidden from God's sight, that he knows you perfectly, that we are fully exposed before him. He knows everything about us. Think about it this way. God knows everything that you've ever done. He knows every word that you've ever uttered. He knows every thought that has ever entered your mind. We are fully and utterly exposed before him. And yet, what do we read in verse 1? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And the Greek that Paul uses here for no is the strongest word he could have used possible. Basically, what he's saying is that there is absolutely no way that condemnation is possible for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or another way to put that is there's not even a chance that condemnation will come to you if you are in Christ Jesus. Let that sink in for a second. There is not a chance condemnation will come to you if you are following Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, there is no condemnation for you, regardless of what you've done. It doesn't matter what kind of person you used to be. It doesn't matter what kind of sins you struggle with. If you belong to Jesus, you are free. And there is no condemnation. And look at what else Paul says about this. He says that there is now no condemnation. Why does he choose to throw that word in there? Why does he say there is now no condemnation? It's because Paul wants us to know that this is your permanent position as a Christian. This is your state. This is who you are. You are no longer under condemnation. And this is so important for us to grasp. Because if you're like me, most of us, most Christians actually don't live life this way. We don't believe that that is true. Let me try to explain that. All of us believe that Jesus died for sins. All of us believe that if we accept Jesus, that he has died for our sins and that we've been forgiven. And we even believe that we are not under condemnation. But then what happens? Maybe we sin in some really big way. And and what, what happens? Suddenly our whole perception changes. Our perspective changes. Because we believe at that point in time that now we are finally under condemnation again. We believe that God is going to judge us until we repent of that sin. That until we confess and repent, we are under condemnation. You see, I think as Christians, we live as if we're constantly falling in and out of this state. That we are constantly falling in and out of condemnation. But that is not what the Bible teaches. 
The Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation. That was true in the past. It is true today. It will be true tomorrow. It will be true a week from now. It will be true until the end of your life. There is now no condemnation. That is true whether or not you've had a good quiet time today. It is true whether or not you feel close to God. It is even true if you are still refusing to repent of a particular struggle with sin. If you're still struggling with a particular sin, it is still true that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The moment you came to Him, condemnation was gone forever. That is your permanent state. When we fail to remember that, and if you're like me, we all do. We all fail to remember that. We fall back into a performance mentality. We, we fall back into like a, a works righteousness situation when we deal with our, our sin and condemnation. And when it happens, that's just, it's exhausting. And it's hopeless. But more importantly, it devalues the work of Christ. Because we are set free from condemnation only because of what He has done. And we're going to see more about that in verses 3 and 4. But before we look at those verses, there's one other thing that I want us to see here. Who does Paul say is actually free from condemnation? It is only those who are in Christ Jesus. Everyone else remains under condemnation. So that means if you are here this morning and you don't have faith in Christ, if you have not accepted Him, if you are not following Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are under condemnation. God will judge you. His wrath is against you. But if that is you, there is still time. There is still hope. Call upon Jesus now. Come to Him. And if you do, the moment you come to Him, then this verse will be true for you. Then there will be no condemnation for you. The moment you come to Christ. And for the rest of us here this morning, that if we are trusting in Christ, then let the truth of these words sink in. There is Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As Christians, we have freedom from condemnation. Paul moves on from there to show us not only do we have freedom from condemnation, but we also have freedom from the corruption of sin as well. We see this in verse 2. It says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, Paul uses the word law here to describe a governing rule or a principle that is at work um, in our lives. And more specifically, it's a principle that's in, in work over us. So before we came to Christ, we were all under the law of sin and death. Basically, what that means is that sin was our master, and the wages of sin was death. We were in bondage to sin and death. But once you came to Christ, you were set free. You are now under the law of the Spirit. He has set you free through Christ, and it is now the Spirit who is the ruling power over our lives. What does the Spirit do? Well, the first thing we get is, is what, how Paul refers to Him. He calls Him the Spirit of life. The Holy Spirit, what He does, one of the things He does is He takes spiritually dead people and He makes them alive. He gives them new life. Through Him we are regenerated. We are given a new life and we are enabled to call upon Jesus in faith. And in doing so, we are redeemed. 
And we are free from the bondage of sin and death because we've been given a new life in Christ. After 27 years in prison, the day that Nelson Mandela walked out of prison, this is what he said. As I finally walked through those gates, I felt even at the age of 71 that my life was beginning anew. This is how we need to view our lives as Christians. The moment you believed in Christ, your life began anew. And the corrupting power of sin was broken. And you are now being ruled and guided by the Holy Spirit. This means, at least it means many things, but one of the things it means is that we now have the ability to fight sin. St. Augustine explained it this way. St. Augustine, what he said is that before you became a Christian, before you came to know Jesus, you were unable not to sin. That is who you were. That was your state. That was the only option you had. You were unable not to sin, or to put it positively, you're going to sin. The moment you accepted Jesus, that changed. And now your state is this. That you used to not be, you used to be unable not to sin. Now you are able not to sin. In other words, we are able to fight sin. Because the spirit of life has set us free. So we see here in verses 1 and 2 that we've been given freedom from the condemnation of sin and we've been given freedom from the corruption or the power of sin. How is that possible? How are these freedoms possible for us as Christians? Well, in both cases, look at what Paul says. In verse 1 he says that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In verse 2 he says the law of the spirit of life has set you free for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is only in and through Christ that this is possible. And Paul shows us how he accomplished that in verses 3 and 4. This is what he writes, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So first, Paul reminds us once again of what the law can't do. The law can't save us. Now, that's not the law's fault, as he says. That is our fault. It is our fault because of sin. Because of sin, none of us can keep the law perfectly as God demands, as he requires. So therefore, what the law actually does is it actually condemns us. And we we talked about this some last week, that the law, it reveals sin, it provokes sin, and eventually it condemns us because of sin. But thankfully... What the law can't do, what does this verse say? God does. And he does it for us. God has saved us. This passage makes it very clear that our salvation is solely based upon God. That the freedom that we experience as Christian is a result of divine initiative. And what did God do? What does the passage say? He sent his son. And look at how Jesus is described here. He is described as being in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now this is of the utmost importance to see. Because look at what Paul doesn't say. He doesn't just simply say that Jesus is in the likeness of flesh. And he doesn't say that Jesus came in sinful flesh. No. He says that he is in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why is that important? Well, Paul is talking about what we, we call the incarnation of Jesus becoming man. And he's being very careful to say that Jesus became Fully human. He became a human being just like you and me, with all of our weaknesses, with all tempted in all the ways that we're tempted, but with one distinction. And that distinction was the fact that he was without sin. 
So Jesus, he possessed all the weaknesses of humanity, but he was without sin. Derek Thomas explains this well when he wrote, Paul is anxious to say that Jesus came as close as it's possible to be to where you and I are, yet he was without sin. He came as the perfect one, truly flesh and blood. And that's Paul's point, is that Jesus was truly a man. He was truly flesh and blood. He had all the struggles, all the weaknesses, everything that we experience, but was without sin. This point is made clear throughout Scripture. Here's just two examples. Philippians 2, verses 7 and 8 say, Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Or again, we hear about this in Hebrews 4.15, which says, For we do not have a high priest, and he's talking about Jesus here. Jesus is our high priest. He says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So God sent his son to become a man, to become one of us, to become a human. Why? Well, look at what he says in verse 3. He sent Jesus, specifically says he sent Jesus for sin. He sent Jesus to take care of our sin problem. And Jesus accomplished this by doing two things. First, he kept the law perfectly. He was fully obedient to God. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He met God's obligation of law-keeping. And that is what Paul means in verse 4 when he says, Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And in what is really an amazing act of grace, Jesus' perfect law-keeping, his perfect righteousness, has been transferred to us as Christians. Through Christ... You have been made righteous. Secondly, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. We see this in verse 3. He became a man first to live a perfect, obedient, righteous life. To live a life that none of us could live ourselves. And then Jesus became a man to die an atoning death on the cross. He took the penalty and the judgment that we deserve, that we earned. He took that upon himself. The wrath of God was poured out upon him instead of us. And in doing this, Jesus condemned sin. How? Well, Jesus was the only man who ever walked this earth. He was the only one whom sin did not have power over. He was the only one who sin could not condemn. And yet... Jesus took our sin upon himself, and he was condemned as a sinner on the cross. He paid the necessary price and punishment for our sin, and in doing so, the power and the condemnation of sin were no more. Because sin was judged at the cross. So sin's claim over you as Christians is no longer valid. Sin no longer has power over us. It cannot condemn us. But this is true only for those, like the verse says, this is true only for those who walk according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. This is only true for those of you who have accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And so this is where Paul now turns his attention to. He turns his attention to these two categories of people, those that walk in the Spirit and those that walk in the flesh. He says there are two and only two ways to live. You either live according to the flesh or you live according to the Spirit. There are no other options. It's one or the other. 
Paul tells us what this looks like in verse 5. He says, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. So what, is, what does Paul mean by that? What does that mean to set your mind on something? Well, William Hendrickson answers this well. This is what he writes. He says, those who live according to the flesh, they allow their lives to be basically determined by their sinful human nature. They set their minds on, are most deeply interested in, constantly talk about, engage and glory in the things pertaining to the flesh, that is, to sinful human nature. Those who live according to the Spirit, and therefore submit to the Spirit's direction, concentrate their attention on and specialize in whatever is dear to the Spirit. In the conflict between God and sinful human nature, the first group sides with human nature, the second side with God. So what Paul is doing here, and we even see this in the quote by William Hendrickson, Paul is leading us to a question this morning. This is a question that every one of us has to answer, and that question is this. Whose side are you on? Are you for God or are you for yourself? Another way to ask that question, just using the language from this passage, is are you living according to the Spirit or are you living according to the flesh? Or once again, are you living for yourself? Because there is no third option. Those are your two choices. It's one or the other. And the important thing is that the answer to that question will bring either life or death. It is a life and death question. Because look at what Paul says about living according to the flesh in verses 6-11. through 11. These are just some of the things he says. If you live that way, it is death. It is hostile to God. If you are living according to the flesh, if you are living for yourself, then you do not belong to Jesus. It means that you are spiritually dead and that God is against you. However, Look at what Paul says in verse 9. Now, he says this specifically to the Romans he's writing to, but he also says this to all of us here who know and follow Jesus. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but are in the Spirit. If you are a follower of Jesus, then look at the things that Paul says. He says that we have life and peace, and we have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. This means that, that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, has made you his home. And that should give us great hope. Not only hope for today, but also hope for the future. And Paul even talks about this. We see this in verse 11. He says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So yes, it is true. We've been given spiritual life. We have a new life in Christ. But we also have hope that even even our dying, mortal, weak struggling bodies, that they too will be raised anew. How do we know that that's true? What hope do we have that that's actually going to happen? What is the answer Paul gives? He says, look at the resurrection. The same one who raised Jesus from the dead, he will also raise you. Think about that for a moment. Think about where we've come from. The end of chapter 7, Paul cries out, Who will deliver me from this body of death? This is the cry of all of our hearts as we fight and struggle with sin. Who will deliver us from this? Who will deliver us from this body of sin and death? And now we see the answer. God will. The one who raised Jesus from the dead, he will also raise you. 
We've been given new life already. We've been given the Holy Spirit already. He now dwells in us. And we will be given new glorified bodies in heaven. And to assure us of the truth of this even further, look at how how Paul describes the Holy Spirit in verse 9. He calls the Holy Spirit both the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. So we see the Trinity here in this verse. It's a picture of the Trinity. In other words, all three members of the the Godhead, the triune God, is at work together for your redemption, for your salvation. That is an amazing thing to consider. That should give us great hope and encouragement and peace and joy. The triune God is for you. He is not against you. And with that foundation in mind, Paul moves on to give us an exhortation. And we find this exhortation in verses 12 and 13. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Because once again, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, so if you're walking by the Spirit, if you belong to Jesus, the Spirit lives within you, then this is the exhortation. Put to death the deeds of the body, and you will live. So as Christians, we no longer walk according to the flesh. And and this is a blessing because we see, if we walk that way, it leads to death. Rather, we live by the Spirit. And so what does that look like? What does it mean to live by the Spirit? One of the, the specific things that means, or one of the specific ways that looks, is that living by the Spirit means that we will put to death the deeds of the body. Now, that's strange language, but basically all Paul is saying is is the deeds of the body here that just refers to our sin nature, refers specifically to sin. So what Paul is saying is that we are to put to death sin as Christians. Since we are now living according to the Spirit, since the Spirit now lives within us, we need to fight that which opposes the Spirit. We need to fight that which leads us away from Jesus, which is sin. We need to fight sin. Paul uses really strong language in this verse. In essence, he commands us to kill sin. How do we do that? How do we kill sin? Well, first, we just need to say no to sin. The moment that sin enters your mind, strike it down. Don't coddle it. Don't feed it. Don't enable it. Take drastic measures to fight sin. This is what Jesus meant when he talks about, if your hand causes you to sin, then what are you to do? Cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, what are you to do? Gouge it out. We must fight sin with everything we've got. We must be ruthless. We must declare war on all those behaviors and attitudes that lead to sin. We are to take no prisoners. We are to put to death the deeds of the body. Now let me just say a few things. First, if if this is something that you've never really heard about this language and you want to do a thorough study of this, John Owen wrote an entire book on this one verse called The Mortification of Sin. And it is an excellent resource, and it is very beneficial and encouraging. So I encourage you to read that if you want to really study this in, in detail. Another thing that I want to point out is, is that the only reason that we can even fight sin is because we have the Holy Spirit living within us. And this is so important to understand. It is the Spirit that enables us and equip us to fight sin. In other words, we don't ever try to fight sin in our own power. We only fight sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is is not just simply a a tool or an instrument that we get to wield as we want. The Holy Spirit is a person. 
And He is the one who holds us in His hand. So that when we do see victory over sin, we don't get the glory. We don't get to be proud about, look how we defeated that sin. No, He gets the glory. He gets the credit for every victory over sin that we have. And the more we understand that, that should help us be more humble and more reliant upon Him as we continue to fight sin. Second thing I want to point out here is that this command to fight sin is not a legalistic command. It's tough at times whenever you're in a, in a reformed church and you tell somebody to do something, you hear somebody cry out, you're being legalistic. That is not what Paul is doing here. We don't fight sin to earn God's favor. We fight sin because God's favor is already upon us because of Jesus. We fight sin in response to what Jesus has done for us. And that is the best motivation to fight sin anyway. You see, the best way to fight sin is, is to understand the gospel more deeply. To understand what Jesus has done for you. To be motivated and to be compelled by his love for you. That is the best way to fight sin. Third, when we, fight sin, when we fail to fight sin, or when our battle with sin is lost, and that's going to happen. There are going to be times we just don't fight sin. There are going to be times when we try to fight sin and we lose. We need to remember verse 1. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Don't ever forget that truth. As you struggle with sin, as you fight with sin, always remember that you are no longer under condemnation. The Spirit reminds us of the freedom that we have in Christ. The Spirit dwells within us and He gives us life. And He also assures us of our new identity. We see this in verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We are all sons of God. And He specifically doesn't say sons and daughters. He doesn't say children because He's going somewhere important with that term son and is related to our inheritance that we have as His sons. It's a good thing. You see, all of us have been adopted into God's family. We see this in verses 15 through 17. Now, unfortunately, I don't have time to go into great detail through these verses, and we're going to be looking at adoption actually over the next few weeks, so we'll be talking more and more about this. But there are two things that I want us to see. First, the act of adoption. Adoption is not something that we have earned. It is something that has been given to us. It is something that we have received. We see this in verse 15, that we have received the spirit of adoption. It is a gift to us by the Father. And not only is it a gift, but adoption also requires, it's a legal action taken by the Father, taken by God. And in that action, there's several things that he does. First off, he makes sure that all of our debts are paid. He gives us a new name. He gives us um, an inheritance that we are heirs to all that is his. He assumes responsibility over us. He promises to guide us and to protect us and to provide for us. So we see that adoption is a gift. It is a legal, it's a legal action taken by God. And not only that, but it is a very costly act taken by God. In order for God to adopt you, he had to send and sacrifice his very own son. Jesus, he is the price of our adoption. His life, his death, was what was required 
in order for us to be adopted into God's family. And that was a price. Jesus willingly went to the cross. We should never forget that. This doesn't happen by accident. Jesus chose to go to the cross. He chose to pay that price. Why? Because he wanted you in his family. He wanted God to adopt you. And he knew the only way that that was possible was for him to go to the cross, for him to die on the cross for you. That is an amazing thing. Jesus loved you so much, he wants to spend eternity with you. And the only way that was possible was for him to lay down his life, to suffer and to die. And he did that willingly, and he did that joyfully for you. So that's the act of adoption. What are the privileges of adoption? First, we have security. Because whose children are we? We are children of the one true God. We are children of the creator of the heaven and earth. Heavens and earth. Second, we have authority. As the verse says, we're not slaves. We are sons. That means we carry the authority of the Father with us. Specifically, it means we have authority over sin. We have the ability and the authority to fight sin. Third, we have intimacy. In this passage, Paul tells us that we receive the spirit of adoption, and because of that, we can cry out, Abba, Father. We can call God Abba. That is a very intimate word. It basically means Daddy. We can call the the one who created all things, the one who is all-powerful, all-knowing, the one who is holy and righteous. We can call him Daddy. It is a term of love. It is a term of access. An affection. Matter of fact, this is the term that Jesus himself uses. He uses this term. He refers to God in this way the night when he was arrested. We find this in, in Mark 14, 36, which says this. And Jesus said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So on the night before Jesus was about to go to the cross, in a moment of, of great agony for him, this is how he call, calls out to his own father, Daddy. We have the same privilege. We have the same intimacy because of Christ, because we've been adopted. Fourth, we have assurance. Verse 16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Holy Spirit reminds us and encourages us of our true identity. We're no longer sinners. We are children of God. Fifth, as God's adopted children, we have an inheritance. We see this in verse 17. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We share in everything that has been given to Jesus. Everything that belongs to Him belongs to us as well. Now just take some time later on today and ponder that truth. We share in the glory and the blessings of Christ as God's children. And then finally, because of our adoption, this is not only a privilege, but it's also a responsibility. We share a family resemblance with God's Son. We share a family resemblance with Jesus. And specifically where it goes in verse 17 is that means that we both share His suffering and in His glorification. And Paul's going to talk more about that in the coming verses, and we'll look at that, well, Essen will look at that in future weeks. So if you've placed your trust in Jesus this morning, then you have been adopted by God. You right now, at this very moment, you are a child of God. And you have access to all the privileges of being one of his children. So so how should we respond to that? We should respond with gratitude and thankfulness and worship. And not only that, but we need to respond with a new motivation and a new desire 
to live like children of God. Not because we're trying to earn our Father's love, but because He already loves us unconditionally as His children. So this morning, what I I hope all of you hear is that if you've come to Jesus, then you have been set free. There is no condemnation for you. You've been given the Holy Spirit. You've been given a new life. You've been given a new identity. You are a child of God. You've been adopted. You belong to Him. And because of those things, because of those foundations, because of those truths, then I exhort you to set your minds on things of the Spirit, not on things of the flesh. To put to death the deeds of the flesh. To put to death sin. And to live as children of God. Not for your own sake. Not for your own glory. But for the glory of our Father. Let us pray together. Lord, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for these great encouragements that we have before us that as Christians, we are no longer under condemnation, that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Lord, I pray that you would help us remember that powerful truth anytime that we struggle with sin, anytime that we think that we are under judgment again, anytime that we are dealing with shame or guilt because of something that we have done or not done. Lord, remind us that because of Jesus and only because of Him that we are no longer under condemnation. Lord, don't only remind us of that, but also remind us that we have a great resource, that we've been given the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, that He encourages us, He enables us, He equips us to fight sin, He reminds us of who we are, that we are children of God, that we've been adopted into your family through Jesus Christ, that we now have a new identity that we belong to you, that we have all the privileges of being the child of God. Lord, help us understand that in a better way. Help us be greatly encouraged by that. And and Lord, I pray that these truths would not just sink in and, and puff us up, but rather they would change our hearts, that they would give us a greater desire to fight sin, that they would give us a greater desire to live as children of God. We pray that this would happen for your glory, not our own. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.